Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Shortly after I got back from my trip to Athens last month, I discovered a new novel that is set in the golden age of ancient Athens. It's called Pericles and Aspasia and follows the story of a young woman, Aspasia, from her escape from pirates off the coast of Athens through her rise to become the partner of Pericles, the great Athenian general, at the time of the building of the Parthenon, the writing of Antigone and, well, just so much more. I just finished reading the book and found it so much more than just their love story. One of its most striking features is the backdrop of the story, which gives us some fascinating detail of ancient Athenian life, all lovingly created by author Yvonne Korshak. So, I'm very pleased to say that Yvonne agreed to come onto the podcast and talk to me today. It's been quite a while since we talked about ancient Greek theatre, so you might need a reminder about some of the names and events Yvonne and I discussed. The Persians by Aeschylus gets a mention which I discussed way back in episode 4 of the podcast. There is Euripides, one of the three great tragedians. You need to go back to episode 11 to hear my take on him. For Sophocles, go to episode 7, and for his play Antigone in particular, see episode 8. Away from the theatre, we mentioned the funeral oration given by Pericles. This was at the end of the first year of the Peloponnesian War. It is sometimes claimed to be one of the most influential political speeches of all time, and it's well worth a read. Or a listen to it, in fact, as there are several very good readings of it available on YouTube. A major part of Yvonne's book is about the building of the statue of Athena that resided in the Parthenon. Although the statue has not survived the centuries, its existence, size and importance to Athens is well documented in ancient commentary. Perhaps all you need to know for the moment is that it was covered in gold and ivory, and constructed at great expense, so was not without controversy at the time. We also talked more widely about Athenian democracy, the importance of the theatre, sculpture, music and the arts in general in Athenian society, and then a little on the art of how these ideas are woven by the author into an entertaining story, all of which I hope you will enjoy. Yvonne was speaking to me from her home in New York. So I want to start just by saying thanks very much, Yvonne, for joining me uh, through the wonders of Zoom. I was going to ask you about what attracted you to write a novel set in ancient Greece, but I think the answer probably lies in in your background. So perhaps you could start off with a a quick biography of yourself uh, to just give us an idea up to where the idea for the novel came from. Well, um, uh, actually, there's not a lot of room for biography there in a way, because the idea came so soon. I first got, uh, fell in love, in love with classical Greece in ninth grade. I had a marvelous ancient history class. And my first, in fact, true love was Euripides because I read Edith, we had to write a report. And in those days, a report could be really basically from one book. And so my, the book I, le- I relied on was Edith Hamilton's A Greek Way to Western Civilization, which I recommend to this day. And she wrote about, about Euripides in an exciting way. She spoke of him as the first modern mind. And I've always loved theater. And the combination of loving theater, and this was a playwright from ancient Greece, the first modern mind, I fell in love with him. But... As I, I think as I matured, 
I came upon Pericles' funeral, famous oration, where he fundamentally outlines the, the ideals of democracy that we're living, as you know, Philip, as we're living with today. And so I have to admit, I was a little fickle. I transferred my, my love from Euripides to Pericles. And as a senior in college, and I was reading Mary Renault's marvelous historical novels about Greece, yes. I decided at that point as a senior to write a book about Pericles and Aspasia. I, and when as I graduated, uh, I did get a job in, in, ed, in publishing, but basically I was going to write the book. That's what I was going to do. I sat down to write the book. And in no time, I found I didn't know enough to write the book about classical Greece. So I, this is really true. I went to graduate school to learn enough to write the book. And one thing leads to another. Certain circumstances of my life made it really necessary for me around the time that I got my graduate degree to go to work. So I went, I did get a job teaching, research, writing, the whole professorial deal at a university, the University of Maryland. So the book was kind of on the back burner, but I was always trying, I had a full academic career in art history. I'm an art historian by, by definition of my profession. And um, I wrote about art history. I wrote about ancient Greece, but I also wrote about Van Gogh, Gauguin, uh, Courbet, and Jacques-Louis David. And my particular uh, slant on those artists, European painters, was hidden imagery. I had a marvelous time with hidden imagery. It was so seductive, it almost kept me from the book, Pericles and Aspasia, but not quite. At one point, after some years, really quite a few years of an academic career, I said to myself, Yvonne, if you don't know enough to write this book now, you never will. And so... That's when I started to write the book in earnest. And uh, it's been a while, but now I'm thrilled that the book is out. And I have also made, I'm, I'm nearly done with the sequel. Well, so it's really more to come. Yes, I, I, having read the book, I know that you end on something of a cliffhanger, I suppose we can call it. Um, and you have some interesting subjects coming up in the near future from, from where you leave off, not, not to mention the Peloponnesian War and, and that, um, that funeral oration that you uh, mentioned just there, which is indeed a, a fantastic thing of itself. Um, I, it would be interesting to see how you can put that into um, the type of book you're writing. I've already done it. And it's, I think, very effective. The problem is, how am I going to get the rights? Because I use some translations. But I didn't use any one translation, and I translated a lot myself. So that's going to be a tricky business. We'll yes. see how I handle it. But the, the chapter is written. It's there. Definitely a conundrum for your publisher. I'm sure, I'm sure it'll be fine. <laughs> They'll work it out. 
So really a, a culmination then in some ways of everything uh, so, that you've been looking at for many, many years. Um, and, and frankly, you know, your, your depth of knowledge clearly comes across in the detail of, of the book. You paint a wonderful picture of ancient Athens, I think. That certainly seems to me, as far you know, from my knowledge, seems to be grounded in so many small facts that you're able to bring in about the way people lived and the way they thought at the time. Which really struck me. Well, thank you for saying that because that's exactly what I discovered I didn't know enough about. And exactly what sent me to grad school. And hopefully, yeah, I think I got, I think I learned enough. So is there, I, I guess it's probably indefinable about where the line is between where what you know as a fact comes in and, and where you let your imagination take hold? I never violate a fact. Anything, any time that anything is certain, I, I, and there are things that are certain. Of course, there are levels of certainty. There are things that are less certain, but I stay, I, 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 I stay with what is known. Or, after all, even what is known is controversial. But I mm. stay with with facts, and yet I let my imagination roam. For instance, nobody recorded that Pericles had a dream before the terrible uh, uh, pressure on him of the weighing of the gold during the scandal of the theft of the gold. Nobody mm. said, and you know, that night before the terrible house, how frightened he was that the gold might not weigh right. He was so worried he had a dream. Nobody recorded that. I, I made up the dream. But on the other hand, the weighing of the gold and that, that, then that, and the very, the concept that the gold had been made to be removable as mm. a kind of war chest and that that fact saved him at the end, at the time of the scandal, that I don't violate. I think with anything that's known or likely. Yes, but you still have to pick over the biases of the sources, which are, are quite pronounced in some of the Greek writings, I, I think it's fair to say. Oh, right. Absolutely. And, of course, um, some some parts of the tale have different endings. I, if I remember right, the fate of the um, the main sculptor of the Parthenon is, is disputed. He either died in jail or sculpting the statue of Zeus um, elsewhere after he may have died. So there's some – you have to pick which – part of that story you want to use yes but also then again this was part of knowing more i also examined the evidence the sculpture is was made in after he would have purportedly have died in jail so the evidence is overwhelming in the side of his having gotten himself to olympia and made one of the, what a sculpture of zeus that was one of the wonders of the world it was one of the of the seven wonders of the world so i think he didn't die yet <laughs> right <laughs> and but of course you have much more free reign with the character of aspasia because much less virtually nothing is known about her that's right very little is known about aspasia and um so that gave me a lot of freedom and i used it i used it but certainly she had the qualities of independence of mind, intelligence, verbal, verbal abilities, uh, and uh, canniness, uh, life smarts, sincerity. 
I think that it, it's not too much to say that those mm. characteristics that I that I shape her, shape around her or in her, are part of logic. Certainly, which was part of her. Yes, and some of that evidence that there is, interestingly, comes from the the fragments of comic plays. I think both for her and Pericles, where the comic writers are are um, having a a joke at them um, oh, of one sort or another. Absolutely, more than a joke. This is ve- there's virulent anti democratic sentiment behind those jokes. So uh, they they do give evidence of and and also back up other evidence of some of the things that happened, but can't be taken at face value or have to be looked at from the point of view that they are fundamentally hostile. And that was another thing that really came across to me was the, uh, we all, of course, now we think of the whole democratic ideal as something we see as perfectly natural, but Democracy was a hard option for the Athenians at the time, and the work, um, particularly you have the work Pericles and his people putting into it, it was quite surprising to me. Well, in a way, it's kind of a deal. It's an imperialistic democracy. Democracy seems to flourish best in, or in an expansive market, and the Greeks after the Athenians after the uh, success in the Persian Wars, it which, which thrust them to a position of leadership, were, expa- were, were, were really uh, expanding, they had a greatly expanding market. So there was the possibility of supporting a large population, and that took the shape of democracy. But it was an imperialist democracy, which, you know, some people think that's a contradiction in terms, but guess what? It isn't. It's almost the definition on large, on large scale. For democracy to, to flourish in a large scale, this, this kind of imperialistic shape seems to be, seems, I'm not, a, I'm not a political scientist, seems to be necessary. But small-scale democracies are um, more easily viable. Yes, and of course we we know what the final outcome of Athenian democracy was uh, in the long term, or rather in the medium term for them, because in the long term it survived in in other forms. That's right. Isn't it amazing, Phil, that it did not survive, and yet it survived. It it almost makes you believe that the pen is mightier than the sword, which has always seemed um, kind of uh, hard to swallow. But the fact of the matter is, the ideas have been more powerful than the fact. Mm, that's quite something, isn't it? It, it, it astonishes me. It, it thrills me in a way. Turning to the, the theatrical aspects of, of your book, you, you make Sophocles quite a, an interesting character, I think. He's not a minor character, but he doesn't play a major part in the plot lines. But he's there as a general, not a very good one, but, but as a general, and um, as, of course, the playwright as well, an advisor to Pericles. And that, I think, is all pretty well attested. Yeah, there's controversy about how close they were. Uh, there, if, if you look at the literature, you see that uh, not everyone agrees with the tack I took, which I t- took after reading various sides of the matter, 
But um, they were the same age, and they were. I, I think it, there's every reason to think there's they were very close, and there's every reason to think that Sophocles did chafe a little under the growing. Uh, I hate to say autocratic where Pericles is concerned, but Pericles certainly did consolidate power in himself. And I think this did cause a friction with Sophocles. And I do think that's part of what we see in Antigone. Yeah. Yes. As you show the first performance of Antigone as part of the of what happens in the book. So that that's pretty difficult, I think, to bring in that idea because you may have readers who don't know Antigone, although it is, of course, one of the most popular Greek plays still. Uh, I even saw a, a version of it myself this summer, uh, the Regent's Park Open Air Theatre, which was uh, excellent, uh, translating it into a, a Muslim setting. Um, which I have to say, you know, was in, entirely appropriate with some of the themes going on in in the play. So, although it's quite well known, not everybody who reads the, reads the book is going to understand how it relates to the, to the themes of the book. But I think it does. Well, I thought it was it was a task. In the first early early versions of that chapter, there was much more about the setting, the theater the rituals leading up to the uh, up to the production of the play and more of the play. And what I had to do was discipline myself as a novelist and say, what's in here is here, not because Antigone is an astoundingly tenacious theme in our culture, not because it's a great play, not because people want to know what the Greek theater looked like or what it felt like to go to the theater. All those things are true and appealing, but what matters in the novel is how does this experience of the first production of Antigone affect the characters? That's the key. I had, and so the, the chapter was cut and shaped and drafted and fixed from that point of view. And I held myself, it was kind of hard. I held myself to that point. How, what is Pericles' relationship to Antigone? What is Aspasia's? And what is little Pericles? Who, you know, I got in Aspasia as a woman could not attend that theater. But as you know from reading, I got her there in a way. I had her with a rehearsal copy of Sophocles Antigone, wouldn't that be fun to put your hands on? And she's home in her rose garden with her little boy, young Pericles, and how she responds to the play as she reads it. And here's the applause from the theater over the wall. And how young Pericles, the little boy, responds to what he's learning and seeing with his mother reading the play. Uh, those, those were the issues. What is the effect of this play on these characters? How does that illuminate their inner lives and their position at this moment within Athens? And uh, I mean, certainly in those scenes, I could feel her frustration at not being allowed into the theatre um, to see the, the play because she is a you know, highly intelligent woman and a almost a scholar in her own right. It's a very strong scene, I think. Some people think that there were a few, um, I, I, I didn't come down one way or another on this point. Mm. Some people feel that there were a few women selling food 
in the theater or prostitutes or entertainer type women. Some don't. Something that happened a little later after Pericles. So I took the tack without knowing for sure, could there have been five females among those 19,000 men selling, you know, honey cakes? Mm. Um, I, I didn't, I, I took the point that they weren't there. And, and the, but the theatre still is a strong presence in, in the story in the city. So the theatre, the theatre was very central to the Athenians. So much so that they, that Pericles got, got money to set, to, so that everybody could attend. We know that Pericles was, was a great supporter of the theatre because it was part of, of the Athenian system. He paid for the Persians to be produced in the first place, which is an indication that he, as a very young man, he was of a rich family. He organised the law that meant that everybody could attend the theatre for free, even the poorest people, which wasn't the case, we think, earlier on. And this is all part of democracy, I think, from his point of view. Yes, but the, the, certainly paying people to go to the theatre and also paying people to go to the law courts. Yes. So that... They were, they were not barred from the law courts because they, they couldn't take a day off from work. That's, I mean, we do it to this day. We get jury, we have jury duty and you get, you know, a check. Yeah. I found a check in the mail yeah. once when I did jury duty. So um, that's very much part of the democratic system. But it's interesting that he applied it. When we say he, of course, he did it all by getting the, the assembly to vote. He didn't, he was never an absolute ruler by any means, and he lost a lot of votes. He didn't always win at all, even at the height of his power. But he he proposed, he got through the pay for people to go to the theater. Of course, at this period, the theater was thought very much in terms of its educational capacity. It was not, let's have a nice, fun evening and see a play it was a a very serious kind of purpose to it the irony is of course that he could afford to do these things because he was creating effectively an athenian empire by turning the league into an empire and getting a lot of tribute from these people that is right and and for a long time they loved it by by they i mean the other greek cities who were part of the athenian league for a long time they were they, they they knew they had a good bargain and they came, they loved Athens. They came to see the theater. They came to see the Parthenon. They came to see the Golden Ivory Athena. They, 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 they added to the uh, economy of Athens simply by coming mm. as well as by buying and selling. But um, eventually that, that league, as you say, turned into what everyone was calling an empire. And Athens hit some hard times. But that's in my sequel. Yes, we mustn't get ahead of ourselves, but the seeds of their own destruction in in some ways. But the important thing about Pericles is, uh, and you bring it out in the book, it comes up repeatedly because it's so important to Aspasia, is that her son cannot be an Athenian citizen by birth because she isn't Athenian. And he had passed the law that both parents had to be Athenian to gain citizenship. In fact, again, going into the future, young Pericles does end up as an Athenian because he earns it in his own right. He does. But Pericles won't bend the law to, to because Aspasia wishes it, and they work as a team in many respects. Well, the theme of belonging, the theme of citizenship, 
is a, is a very essential a thread that runs throughout the book because Aspasia is a, a foreigner and the, the child, as you say, can't be a citizen uh, of Athens because he had one parent, his mother was foreign, but the idea is that if he does something extraordinary for Athens, he can, he can become a citizen. But in fact, what happens, and again, I'm projecting forward into, into the next book, what happens is that both of Pericles' sons, by his wife, his legitimate sons, older than young Pericles, die in the plague. And he has no heir. He has no one after him. And so he breaks, he who has never, who, who takes it as a tenet of his leadership, never to ask anything for himself. And I wrote this chapter too already, though it's in the next one. He goes before the Athenian assembly, finally, having lost those boys, one son left. He pleads with them to make his son a citizen. And they do as a great gift. And he eventually does earn his citizenship. But that, as Scheherazade said, is a tale for another night. Indeed, we won't go any further into that one. The character of Pericles is obviously a hugely charismatic leader. Uh, he's also a very, very good one in many ways, and, and he fulfills uh, the people's wishes and makes Athens a very rich place. I couldn't help feeling that you were trying to draw some parallels there with maybe leaders in our own time that rely on charisma and other qualities and maybe are not quite such good leaders in the long run. You know, I can see that reading the, if you read the book today, as you did, as after all, it just got published, um, that would come to mind. But it was not in my mind as I developed the book. I don't mean it was totally out of mind. I noticed parallels. The imperial democracy was, was what I, what caused me to think deeply about the parallels between the United States and, and ancient Athens. But the, the, I, the, we've had charismatic leaders in this country, in the U.S., before today, and there have been good ones and bad ones. But that was really not in, my, in the forefront of my mind. But I can see that if I read the book today, it would be, just because it's so much in the forefront of all our minds. Yes, it is. And, and I guess that's another way that it speaks to us that what happened in ancient Athens really still resonates today in so so many ways. It, it certainly does. Uh, not only in politics, of course. I mean, another important strand in the book, I think, is the influence of the arts throughout. Uh, you, you have continual reference to music, uh, the music hall that Pericles built, uh, the theatre, of course, as we've already spoken about, uh, and Aspasia's learning. I mean, it's all the, the importance of the arts in Athens um, and the importance of people learning instruments and the such like, I think, is something you were picking out particularly. Well, I wish we could hear Greek music. And, you know, there been, there's been some research and there have been some papyri found in Egypt, which, of course, because of the dry climate, is the place where the most papyri of that very early period have survived. But there are fragments, and no. So you go to the Greek theater, you go to a Greek play today, and you, you, you know, there it all is. And this could be in Greece, this could be anywhere, 
maybe hopefully in an outdoor theater because it helps to see these plays outdoors. They were originally performed outdoors. And there's a chorus and the chorus chants whatever the lines of the play are. And they're always given this kind of chant. And then they change direction to the other side, more chant. And this is kind of heavy and deadly dull. And you never, we just cannot, I have never seen a play that really allows me to feel that I got a glimpse of what, after all, since all the arts of this period were so brilliant and so exciting, they certainly didn't have a boring chorus with, with chanted dull music. We don't know that part. But although we don't know that part, we know so much about the arts in one way or another. Uh, we know the sculpture because even though in somewhat broken form, some of the greatest sculptures that have ever been carved were on the pediment, east pediment, that's the gable at the top of the temple, that triangular gable, were set in the gables, both east and west side of the Parthenon Temple. Those were destroyed, those were damaged when in, uh, they, had stayed, they had been in place for, 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 for hundreds and hundreds of years. At a certain point, there was a, a, a violent war in Greece, and opponents put a bomb inside the Parthenon. No, excuse me, I'm going to correct that. They didn't put a bomb. They stored their ammunition inside the Parthenon. And the, they, and the Parthenon was shelled. And for, for something like three hours, the Parthenon was shelled without an explosion. But after about three hours, some missile hit inside and exploded all that ammunition. At that moment, the sculptures, which had set perfect, well, perfect, pretty perfect, almost perfect, on top of the temple, in sight for all fell, and they were broken, but they were not destroyed. And many of them are now with controversy in the British Museum. Most of them are in the British Museum. Weeks want them back. Interesting story of today. So we don't have to guess. We know that Phidias, who was the designing mind behind the sculptures of the Parthenon, we know that Phidias was one, if perhaps the greatest sculptor who would ever live, the only, you'd have to go to the Renaissance to Michelangelo to find a potential rival. So we know about the sculpture. We know something about the painting. From Vey's painting, little, little things, not the big wall paintings. We don't have any of the great wall paintings that the Greeks and the Athenians uh, felt were so central to their street, to their city, to, their, to the beauty of their city, to the traditions of their city. We don't have them. But we have some paintings slightly later that have given great insight into what the Greeks may have been doing in, in our time. By our time, I mean Pericles' time. The time I spend my life in. What can I say? I'm never far from there. We're here today. Part of me 
is back there, back with Athena, back with Pericles, back with Aspasia. And there I left Yvonne to think further on Pericles, Aspasia and ancient Athens. It was a real pleasure to talk to Yvonne and absorb some of her very evident love for the subject. You can get your copies of Pericles and Aspasia in hardback, paperback and ebook editions from all good booksellers, and Yvonne mentioned that there would also soon be an audiobook version published. If you think you don't know much about ancient Athens or the original histories might be a bit dry for you, then Pericles and Aspasia would, I think, be an entertaining way for you to get into the subject. And if you already know a bit more about the histories, then I'm sure you'll enjoy Yvonne's take on the characterisation of these people and events. Next time, for another Between Seasons bonus episode, I'll be moving forward in time to take you back to the medieval, the Renaissance and beyond, as I take a look at one of the oldest unbroken traditions in theatre, the Oberammergau Passion Play. I look forward to your company then, but if you do have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. (laughs) 